Thank you for listening to audio from First Baptist Church of Flora. If you would like more information about our church, please visit www.fbcflora.org. Um, it is a great honor for me to stand here before you today and present a little bit of studying I've done over this past couple weeks. Um, it's a special thing. It's an honor and it's a grave responsibility. The role of a pastor as a minister is bound with the significance and eternal importance of leading others to Christ and down the road to faith. Brother John has mentioned several times how he protects his pulpit. By God's grace, I will live up to his expectations a little bit, and we'll do that today. Starting today, open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7. We're going to be considering today verses 13 through 23. For context, let me uh, go over a little bit of what's going on in the history of Israel at this time. Remember that during this time in the New Testament, Rome ruled the world. The nation of Israel was at the crossroads of the known world. And essentially, the whole world spoke the same language. Israel became an essential port for commerce. There was an essential land bridge in between the north and the south, the east and the west. The port of Caesarea was used to transport goods from Macedonia to Rome. Egypt had to go through uh, Israel to get to Persia, for example. So we come here, understand that God had a perfect sense of timing, a perfect time for him to bring down his son and to introduce him to the world to us. We see in Matthew that Jesus has started his preaching ministry. Um, in Matthew 4, verse 23, we read that Jesus went throughout all Galilee, teaching in synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria. And they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics. And he healed them. And great crowds followed Jesus from Galilee and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. So Jesus was going from synagogue to synagogue, gaining a following. And can you imagine the curiosity that he got? Keep in mind... At this time in the Bible, the men of Israel were waiting for the coming of the next Jewish king, the Messiah that was promised to them, who would reestablish the throne of David. And here's this man calling out, the kingdom of God is at hand. So they followed him. They followed him to the Sermon on the Mount where we come to him today. And so the crowd gathered. Men brought families. Children skipped school or whatever they had to skip in those days. They came with their aches and pains, with hungry hearts and curious minds, and sat down to hear what this living prophet had to say. And what do you think they wanted to hear? Understand, like I said, this whole race of people are eagerly awaiting God to reestablish his Davidic line of kings and to expel the Roman oppression. They are a whole people 
that have been told throughout their scriptures, throughout the Old Testament, that God would bring back their kingdom. And they waited for the military leader that they believed the prophets of old foretold. They were waiting for somebody to rally them, form an army, take back the promised land. So maybe, maybe men came ready to deploy. Maybe they had their good sandals on, a staff, their belts tied tight, whatever they thought they needed. Maybe with money for a journey, a change of clothes. Maybe they came ready for war, this crowd that followed Jesus. And he came to the mount and sat down. And what do you think they heard? The men there gripping their staff, white knuckles, ready to rise up against the Roman occupiers. What did they hear? You know what they heard. It's the Sermon on the Mount. He said, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Then there were their mothers there too. They sat there waiting, listening, probably hoping for some idea of what their children would expect when they grow up, hoping that their children would not live under Roman oppression, that maybe the taxes would be relieved and that they would be able to feed their children better. So they sat there, their babes in their laps, and what did they, what do you, what did they hear? They heard, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. I mention this because it's important for us to understand and for to think about when we approach the scriptures. We sit today here under the teaching of God's holy word, and we all came in with some notion of what we want to hear. We came in with some baggage, some expectation, some image of in our mind of who Jesus is. But I want what I want us to do as we read through this scripture is to do our best to release ourselves from what we suppose the Bible should say and listen to what it does say. Let's try not to come to this passage with too much intellectual, political, ideological baggage, okay? Let's come today to God's word with open hearts, open ears, ready to hear what the Holy Spirit has to say to us. So please stand for the reading of God's word. Matthew 7, we're going to start at verse 13. Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, 
many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And now let me offer up a short prayer. This is one I've stolen from the Valley of Vision. Let's pray. Lord God, give us perpetual brokenheartedness. Keep us always clinging to thy cross. Give, give, flood us every moment with your descending grace. Open to us the springs of divine knowledge, sparkling like crystal, flowing clear and unsullied through my wilderness of life. My God, open our ears that we may hear, our hearts that we may receive, our minds that we may understand, and move us toward accomplishing your will. Amen. You may be seated. If there is any more terrifying verse of the Bible, I don't know what it is. I'm sure you've heard this verse before, and at the same time imagined yourself what it would be like to be in that situation. So let's imagine it just for a minute. You're laying on your deathbed. The children are all around you. You are excited because you have accomplished a great deed. You have come to the end of your life, and everybody is so proud of you. Your pastor is there. He gives you a high five. And you are expecting to see Jesus there the gates of heaven open and him waving you in like he's calling in aircraft. Come in, come in. And then you close your eyes in death and open them in eternity. And he's there, scratching in his book. And you looks up and he sees you and you say, Hello, I'm here. You've been waiting for me. I'm here. And he says those three little words. Who are you? I'm Ian. I've led a Bible study for 20 years. I've led others to Christ. I've given sacrificially to the church. I preached that one day on Labor Day weekend. And he says to you, I don't know you. Depart from me. Terrifying. Absolutely terrifying. And sadly, I would espouse that there are many of us who will find ourselves in that situation. Are you concerned? Maybe you're a new Christian. Maybe, as is common with church growth, you have recently recommitted your life to Christ. Maybe you've been at this altar recently, and you've begged for forgiveness. Maybe you've been a Christian for several years. Maybe you felt your spiritual life waning. Maybe you want to do more and don't know what next step to take. Maybe you're coming to what you consider the close of your life the close of your Christian life, and you are dissatisfied with what you've accomplished. Maybe you've decided to get serious, to not play church anymore, as Brother John has called us to do. And you've stood, in your, you've stood up and you've asked yourself, now what? Well, I believe the Bible here has something to say to you today, so let's study it together. And I've split it into three main parts The first is two gates, verses 13 and 14. 
And we'll spend very little time there. And then there's two fruits, verses 15 through 20, and where we will probably get the most out, use out of our text today. And finally, there's this harrowing promise of Christ in verse 21 through 23, where we will see two ends. So two doors, two fruits, two ends. Number one, enter the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Christ's point is pretty plain. There's two choices. One choice leads to heaven, one to hell. Simple as it can get. First is the wide gate, easy to find, easy to go down. It's easy to be evil, isn't it? It's easy to do what we desire to do. It's hard to be good. It's hard, and sometimes it's not just hard to do, but it's hard to find out what it is the good thing, the good door, the narrow door is. Did you see that? Christ said that those who find it is small. The door is small. The door is hard to find. Sometimes knowing which door is the right door for us to enter is hard to decipher. So how can we know the right choice? How can we know which door is the right one for us to enter? How do you know? Notice, though, there's only two choices. Wouldn't it be nice in our world today? When we go through our, the day, our days with dozens of choices all around us in any direction, every opportunity Every option seems like a viable option. For Christ, there are two. Only one goes to heaven, and the others don't. Secondly, two fruits. During this time of history, during the Roman occupation, many Jews formed what were called synagogues. These were essentially ten family churches that were taught by itinerant preachers. And truthfully, it was a dangerous situation to be in ecclesiastically. There was no Southern Baptist convention to vet and guard these churches. There was no shepherd, no single minister like we have here to, to guard his pulpit to make sure that those who taught, taught the Bible. These synagogues had the oversight of the congregation and as such were vulnerable they were bound by the devotion of the heads of those ten or so families. So it is within reason that they get the warning in verse 15. Beware false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. We see his point. Beware who you let in your synagogues. Beware who you let preach from your pulpits. Watch and test to see if any of them be ravenous wolves. Test them. Try them. Turn with me briefly to Ezekiel chapter 13, and we will see an example of a false prophet. Ezekiel 13. We'll read, uh, start reading in verse 3. We're only going to read 3, 4, and, and 6. So in this time in history, in Ezekiel's history, 
the kingdom of Israel was already captured and being exiled. Now the enemy armies were coming after the nation of Judah, and there were those false, there was false prophets, and we could call them, I guess you could say, health and wealth prophets. They were going around proclaiming God's unlimited love and grace, despite the fact that the armies were coming to take them into slavery, essentially, into alien lands. In 13, verse 3, we read, Thus says the Lord God, Woe to the foolish prophets who follow their own spirit and have seen nothing. Your prophets have been like jackals among ruins, O Israel. And we'll skip down to verse 6. They have seen false visions and lying divinations. They say, declares the Lord, when the Lord has not sent them. And yet they expect him to fulfill their word. That's worth reading again. They expect God to fulfill their word. You see the blasphemy. These prophets, wanting to gain praise from the people, preached prosperity in the midst of famine. God later in this chapter said he would drop hailstones and walls down on them and crush them. Ezekiel 13 as a whole would be a great chapter to read today for homework, after lunch maybe. But let me ask you a question. You may be saying, this doesn't sound like me. When you pray and you ask for something, are you already acting on the answer that you want? I'm not talking about stepping out in faith. I'm talking about the reckless use of God's grace, placing yourself in spiritual danger because you hope that God will reach down and save you, that he will bend his will to yours. Do you ask him if it is his will to buy a car with the money you have while you are at the dealership? Do you ask him for protection from temptation while you are driving there, while you're going someplace where you know you will be tempted? You see, too often we baptize our decisions in prayers, hoping that God will bend his will toward us and give us his blessing when God wanting to, wanted to bless us elsewhere. So really, are we any different sometimes than those wolves in sheep's clothing? those jackals in the ruins. Sometimes we need to pull up our own wool. We need to check our own spirituality and make sure that we are not the wolves or the jackals. Back in Matthew. Verse 16, You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from bush, thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So even every healthy, tr excuse me, every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them. Now the tree and the fruit is not an uncommon image in the Bible. We have seen it over and over again. After you read Ezekiel 13, maybe for homework this afternoon, turn to Psalm 1 and read about the tree there. Turn to Jeremiah 17 and read about the tree there. Do you know how to tell what good fruit is? When Jesus is explaining this, I believe many were there nodding their heads like, yes, Jesus. 
We know what good fruit is. We know what bad fruit is. But they lived in an agrarian culture. Being able to tell ripe fruit from bad was basic survival back then. Now we trust Kroger to make the decision for us. I still can't knock on a watermelon at Kroger and tell whether or not it's ripe. They all sound the same to me. So I rely on Kroger to, tell, to sell me ripe fruit. And sadly, that's true for many of us. If we were to say, enter a peach orchard, could you pick the ripe fruit from the green? Or when you choose and bite into it, if it's green, or even worse, if it's sickeningly overripe and rotten? What's the solution? Being able to tell fruit is a learned, learned skill. Like deciphering the two doors, we must know what ripe fruit what a ripe peach, for example, looks like, what it smells like, what it feels like in the hand. I knew an old peach farmer. His name was Jack Liddell. I went to church with him for a time in Learned, Mississippi. If you don't know where Learned is, it's uh, about 15 minutes south of Raymond. At one time, he had a peach orchard, and he was much advanced in years and retired when I met him but he had still an offensive amount of knowledge on how to grow peaches. He knew the composition of the soil necessary for the trees and every stage development of the buds, of the planting, of the picking. He knew how to produce good fruit. And one Sunday, he tried to educate me a little after church about peaches. By the time he was done, my head was spinning. You know those people. People who know so much about something they are once impressive and a little scary. And I was like, Jack, oh, Mr. Jack, I said to him, there's peaches in the store. That's where I get my peaches. You should have seen the look on his face. I would have done better to have slapped him, but I didn't understand. I didn't understand what he was trying to tell me. I didn't understand until one Sunday he came to church with the back of his car full of little potato bags. In these sacks were peaches. You see, even though he had long sold his orchard, he still kept some peach trees around his house, still pruned them, plucked the buds to make sure that every fruit was good. And every year, actually around this time, around peach harvest time, he would bring what fruit he could to his fellow church members. Have you ever had a truly, truly ripe peach? A perfect, fresh, ripe peach picked at the apex of its time, sun warm and gold red. Then you know what I'm going to say. I have never had, nor have I had since, a more delicious, sweet fruit than that one peach. I can still taste it 20 years later. And it was his knowledge, Jack's knowledge, that made, that governed that peach. He knew all the right things to do. He knew when to prune. He knew when to pick. So how do we learn? How do we know how to recognize the good fruit from the bad, the right door from the wrong? Verse 21, our last point. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, 
but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On the day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Some of you are in this situation. The troubling fact is, you may not even know it. You may be sitting there, well, that's not me. Are you sure? Are you sure? It should trouble you. It troubles me. It should be disturbing because it's our eternal significance. How could we be sure he won't say this to us? I love the Bible. I love the simplicity of its language and the conviction of its meaning. Verse 21, but. Thank God there's a but. There's a caveat. Here's the crux of the matter in verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Here's the crux. Here's the message. Here's the gospel. Are you being ruled by the will of yourself? Am I being ruled by the will of Ian? Or am I submitting to the will and rule of Almighty God? This is the crux of the gospel. God's certain judgment laid against God's certain grace. The gospel is God's devastating damnation being mitigated by God's absolute grace. There's two gates. One is hard to find, is narrow, is hard to pass through. The other is easy to find, enter, and travel. There are two fruits, two trees. One is destined for the fire, and one will be used to produce good fruit. Which one are we? Are we seeking out and doing the will of the Father? That time not too long ago when you came, out, came up and knelt at this altar and called out to God, or maybe in your truck, or maybe in your bed into your pillow, crying and sobbing and saying, I am sorry for my sin. Did we mean it? Do we still mean it? Aren't we just so tired of sin? So what do we do? What are we doing to discover how to grade fruit? How to learn what is ripe and rotten? How to produce ripe fruit? How are we discovering the will of God? Are you having trouble? Is your spirit heavy within you? There's a way to learn. Here it is. If you are not daily spending meaningful time in the Word, today's the day. If you want to learn how to grow good peaches, ask a peach farmer. If you want to learn about eternal life, ask an eternal God. By, dable, by daily Bible reading, we learn who our God is, what He has done for us, and how we are to live for him. 
This is a society where we get all we want all at once. And we need to understand that God's enlightenment through His Word is cumulative. It happens through the regular practice of reading, studying, meditating. If you don't start today, you may not start at all. Read your Bible every day. You don't have to read a lot, but you have to start. There's a thousand plans and ideas if you don't know how to start. There's a thousand people probably in this church that can help you, in this world that can help you, maybe not a thousand. Come see the ministerial staff, see a deacon, see your life group teacher, ask him, where do I start? Personally, I like Genesis. You may want to start in a, in a gospel. The important thing is that you start. Through this, doing this daily, you will know what the ripe fruit of God is. You will be made familiar with it. You will know it when you see it. Know what it sounds like. What it feels like in your heart. How it feels to carry it in your hand. You will be able to tell the good trees from the bad. You will recognize the door. The good door. The narrow door. After you are made familiar with the gospel, apostasy, heresy, things that are not of God will be made more evident to you. And then pray. Reading and prayer. Pray early. Pray often. Pray late. Begin and end your days in prayer. Prayer light, pray lightly going down the road. Pray hard with eternal heaviness on your knees next to your bed or your desk. With every breath, thought, and deed, we need to be consumed with prayer. I don't have time. I'd like to read from Psalm 55, verses 16. But I call to God, and the Lord will save me. Evening and morning, and at noon, I utter my complaint and moan. And he hears my voice. He redeems my soul in safety from the battle that I wage. For many are arrayed against me. Along with the other homework that I've mentioned, I would have had Psalm 55 to that list. Let me close with this. Let's revisit those pearly gates that we've visited earlier. Remember the image? You're on your deathbed. Pastor giving you a high five. You close your eyes in triumph. And you open them in glory. And Christ is there, scratching in his book, and he looks up. Who are you, he says. Well, we know what not to say. We're not going to say that we cast out demons, that we led others to Christ. We're not going to rely on our own works. What we are going to say is that I am a child of God. I am covered by the blood of the Lamb. I was given and am wearing his wedding garments. I am redeemed by the death of Christ. I am a partaker in his inheritance. I have sought out and done the will of God.
You better be able to say that. Nothing else matters. Can we say that? Can you say you are redeemed? Brothers and sisters, if you have never truly believed in a God Almighty, in His redeeming work of His Son, Jesus Christ, on the cross, now is the time. Let me finish by uh, reading a small passage in the book of Revelation, actually. Revelation 3. These are red letters. These are the words of Christ, even though they are in the book of Revelation, as heard by John. Jesus says, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then that you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief. And you will not know at what hour I will come against you. You will not know at what hour I come against you. He comes as a thief. No one knows the day of their hour of their death. No one knows when we will pass away into eternity. Can you at once confess Christ and live to your own will? Can you? Would you dare? Or ought you better to confess Christ and live the life he lays out for you from his holy word? Now. Now's the time. Let's pray together. God, my Father above, we seek you with our hearts. We desire you. We hope for your coming. God, above your will is what we want. Help us to find it. Help us to read. Help us to seek your face. Help us to love you. Be with us today. Guide our paths. Show us the narrow door. Teach us to see ripe fruit. And forgive us our sins. <laughs>